Welcome Truth Seekers all across the Fruited Plain. I'm your host, Kim S. Anderson, bringing you Civics Made Simple. Hashtag we are exceptional. These are bite-sized civics lessons designed for you to take and share wherever you go. These are important times. Times that American citizens like you and me need to know how our rights came to be and the responsibilities that go along with them. Welcome, welcome everyone. This is your host, Kim S. Anderson, back with you for Civics Made Simple. And it is my pleasure to be back with you. I want to just state for the record before we get into the lesson, I want to give my apologies to all of you. This lesson that we are getting ready to release and that you're getting ready to listen to was obviously a bit of a struggle for me as it is entitled Electing a President. And as you're listening to this here in the States, we are still recovering from the election of 2020 and all that transpired because of it. And so as I thought about this lesson, I decided and came to the conclusion that it was more important to leave a record of truth of how things should be, regardless of how things actually played out in the last election. And therefore, we're leaving a record for our posterity of how things should be, how they were intended to be. And as long as we leave a plumb line of truth, um, we're doing good and we're, we're, we're serving our fellow citizens and the constituency and those of you that listen and follow this podcast. So my apologies for the delay in the releasing of this podcast, but with no further ado, let's leave a legacy, shall we? All right. This lesson is entitled Electing a President, and it is based on our friends um, from Alpha Omega Publishing as we follow their civics course, generally for ages, um, I want to say grade 7 to 12, but it is not so high that anyone can't pick this up and start to follow and understand why civics in America is important. And in all actuality, we are having a live civics lesson (laughs) for those that are listening in 2021. We're living civics right now. So with no further ado, let's dive into the lesson on electing a president. Now, first, let's talk about constitutional requirements. The Constitution established the process for the selection of the president and vice president. Furthermore, it set their terms of office and set forth the personal requirements of the candidates. Now, the Electoral College, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, provides, first of all, the process for the selection of the president. The founding fathers were still not convinced of the wisdom of allowing citizens to directly elect their leaders. Their fears regarding the failures of direct democracy in early Greece probably contributed to this concern. In reality, the writers of the Constitution recognized the strong opinions held by those who supported stronger state governments, perhaps at least partly for the reason placed They placed greater trust in decisions made by the states and their representatives than they did by those at the federal level. At the time of the writing of the Constitution, political parties were not even conceived of, and as a result, there was no way to assure the choice of qualified candidates. 
The founding fathers wanted to create a presidential electoral process that would make use of an enlightened group of electors in the Electoral College who would select a leader based on personal merit and potential leadership ability rather than just on local popularity. The Constitution didn't specify how the electors were to be chosen, but simply said that the state state legislatures should appoint in such manner the legislature, um, I'm sorry, that the legislature should appoint direct electors equaling the total number of senators and representatives. That was their total instruction. The total list of names and votes for each was to be submitted to the president of the Senate who announced the vote. The Constitution established a set procedure to follow in the event that there was no candidate who received a majority of the votes cast. Two or more candidates receiving a majority or in the event that none of the candidates received a majority. In each case, the House of Representatives was left to make the final vote, each state having one vote. And the person who received the second highest number of votes was to be the vice president. Should there be a tie, the Senate would then vote to determine the winner. Now, this system worked fine in the early years, but as time went on, more and more complications developed. On occasion, the results of the elections left the country with a president from one party and a vice president from another. Now, this still happens in some states where governors and lieutenant governors are elected separately and can be from different parties. Now, this process was changed slightly in 1804 with the passage of Article 12 in the amendments. This provided for a ballot vote by the electors in which they voted separately for the president and vice president. The requirement for choosing the president and the vice president remained somewhat the same, but the process for naming for naming the leader should the Congress not be able to reach a decision was added. Now, while the role of the Electoral College remains basically unchanged today, the process for choosing a vice presidential candidate has changed. Today, once a presidential candidate has achieved the nomination of his party and has been assured of the party's selection, he announces his choice for running Although the choice is his, most candidates seek such seek much input, I'm sorry, from their closest counselors and advisors. Generally, a vice president now is chosen who represents a different part of the country or whose political views agree with and strengthen the position of the presidential candidate. Presidential qualifications, let's talk about it. The President of the United States must be a natural-born citizen. Under the present constitutional requirement, no naturalized citizen can become President. Now, naturalization is the legal, legal, legal process by which an alien or an immigrant can become a United States citizen. The president must be also at least 35 years of age and must have lived in the United States for at least 14 years. Now, the presidential, blah, 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 I got it, I got it. The presidential term of office is four years. In addition, Amendment 22 of the Constitution provides that no person may be elected to the office of president more than two times. Thus, the maximum number of years a president can serve is eight except in the case of a vice president who takes office 
as the result of the death or resignation of the president. If the vice president serves as president less than two years, he or she may be eligible to be reelected to the office two times. Now, the vice president is an individual from the same political party as the president. He or she is chosen by the president and nominated by the political party. He is elected to office on the same ballot as the president. Now, the vice president must also meet the same qualifications as the president regarding age, citizenship, and residency. Okay, so here we go. The presidential election. Now, the selection of a president, as we have lived through these last couple of years, begins as early as two years or more prior to the presidential election. Individuals announce their intention to become a presidential candidate, and they begin their campaign. We have lived this in the last few years rather pointedly. Early in the year of the presidential election, states begin holding their primaries, which are elections in which the citizens vote for their choice of candidate to represent their political party. Now, in primary elections, some states allow voters to only cast ballots for candidates of the political party in which those voters are registered. Other states allow voters to cross over and vote for candidates in the opposite political party. Now, normally, by early summer of the election year, voters have generally selected the candidate of their preference, and each political party holds its own party convention, which officially nominates its candidate for office. And the candidate then announces, you know, his or her choice for vice president. And the convention approves the presidential candidate and the campaign for president begins in earnest. Now, on the first Tuesday following the first Monday in November, presidential elections are held in every state of the union. Now, while citizens cast their ballots for presidential candidates, they are, in fact, voting for the electors of their political party from that state. The presidential candidate who receives the majority of the popular vote receives all of the electoral votes of that state. The number of electors that a state is allowed is equal to the number of senators and representatives. Although the total popular vote has often been undeniably in the favor of the winning candidate, some elections have been won by very slim margins, as we are aware. Generally, by the end of the election day, we know who our president is. We know which candidate has won the election. Officially, the Electoral College meets in December to cast its electoral votes for the candidate. Based on a pledge agreement, electors generally vote in accordance with the popular election, although they are not required by the Constitution to do so. There have been occasions when electors refuse to follow this pledge, but it has never seriously affected the overall outcome. Now, some states have laws requiring their electors to vote as required and that their ballots represent the votes of the states as opposed to the popular vote that represents the vote of the individuals. The ballots are then sealed and sent to the U.S. Senate, where they are officially opened on January 6th and the president assumes office on January 20th. Now, Article 2, Section 1 also provides for presidential succession. 
It provides a general statement to the effect that the vice president shall assume the office of president should the president be removed from office or die or otherwise be unable to perform his duties. Now, the process of filling the positions should both the president and vice president be unable to serve was left to Congress. And Congress was supposed to determine this by law. Now, after a number of times when the president had died or been unable to perform his duties, Article 20 was added in 1933 to take care of situations in which a president may die during office in that period. I'm sorry. Article 20 was added in 1933 to take care of situations in which a president may die during the period of assuming office. Finally, in 1965, Congress submitted a proposal for an amendment to the Constitution that further clarified the succession process and provided for the nomination of a vice president and provided for the nomination of a vice president by the president should a vacancy occur. A majority of both houses of Congress must approve the nomination. This amendment also provides the disability for the disability of a president and this was adopted in 1967. Today, the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, with modifications to accommodate the changes since then, establishes the rather long line of successors to the presidency. This provides for an unlikely and undeniable event of the inability of a number of government officials to serve. Now, of course, we hope that we never, ever have to go through the Presidential Succession Act because as till now, we never have. But it is part of the Constitution. It is law that remains open to amendments and change. And so the final section of this article provides for the removal of a president by impeachment for conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, we will talk a little bit more in depth in the days to come about the impeachment process um, and the integrity that needs to exist if charges of impeachment are brought against a president, a vice president, or any federal official. We will get there. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to get through this lesson and get it posted and up to you. Next, we're going to be talking about, we're going to do a case study on the election of 1824. It was quite an interesting time. And then we're going to move into a really, really interesting subject called the federal bureaucracy. You know what? We just got to do it. We just got to get to it and we've got to talk about it and we've got to lay it bare so that people can really begin to see the plumb line of the truth about our country. It's a great country, but we still need to see the truth about what's happening. So this is Kim Anderson over and out. Thank you guys so much for listening to our podcast, Civics Made Simple. We're trying to keep it simple in a complicated world right now. So we'll be back soon with our next lesson. God bless you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Civics Made Simple. This is your host, Kim S. Anderson, inviting you to visit our site, kimsanderson.me.me for the latest and most up-to-date information on our podcast and our store. Follow us at hashtag WeAreExceptional on Instagram and Twitter. 
God bless, and we'll see you next time.